Well, hello. Uh, this is the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club. And in each episode of this podcast, I explore uh, a little bit of the works of Robert A. Heinlein, starting from his earlier stuff. Um, and hopefully, as we work our way through this podcast, we'll get to uh, the end of his career. Um, so uh, currently, we're looking at a bunch of short stories that he wrote in the, in the 30s and 40s. And that brings us to um, today's episode, which will be about Let There Be Light, which was uh, published in 1939. No, sorry, 1940. Uh, so Let There Be Light was published in 1940. It was published under the name Lynn Monroe, um, but it's, it's a Heinlein story. And uh, this is a, an interesting one, and I think quite relevant to us to today. Um, thematically, there's actually that much, that not that much to talk about, but I, I do think it's it's an important story because of its its commentary on intellectual property, and I suppose on on climate change, on environmentalism. But that's not really, I think, Heinlein's focus here. It is interesting that we have basically uh, a model of solar power being a experimented with here and then the reaction to that by the ruling elite um you know the basically the energy companies uh try to suppress this this actually very much reminds us of the story lifeline in which we had a technological innovation in that case it was the ability to predict when you would die and that is then was then became an existential threat to the to the business uh, interests of the insurance companies but I'd argue Let There Be Life is, Light is a much more radical um, model of this because with Lifeline, basically you have one doctor with an invention that only he really knows how to use. And once he's dead, that kind of ends the, the threat of that. So in that, in that story, the, the bad guys eventually sort of win out because that, that technology doesn't, there's not much clue, evidence that the technology is going to take off there. It seemed to be more of a one-off thing. But in Let There Be Light, uh, our heroes at the end of the story, uh, um, a woman scientist and uh, a male scientist, uh, Mr. Dr. Douglas and a Dr. Martin. Dr. Martin is the, is the female uh, scientist. They, uh, they develop basically a, a method of solar energy by inverting. Uh, it's kind of like Lifeline in that way too, where you just kind of invert something and there it was like, you have something to do with like zipping um, some kind of information down this time stream, which can go both ways, backwards and forwards. But backwards maybe is not that interesting because you know when you were born, but the forward one is, is, is the one that's of more interest to customers. Here you have, uh, basically, they're trying to develop a more efficient light bulb. Um, a, a more efficient incandescent light bulb, they call it... Uh, they call it a cold light is is the is the name they give for it or that's what i guess uh, douglas gives for it first and then martin kind of comes and says oh i want to talk to you about this and 
and then they kind of developed the technology a little bit more and it's quite successful but it has another application which is essentially to be the producer of 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 energy if you invert it so it's able to take energy from the sun and then convert it to to energy to provide unlimited light sources it basically is like a self-sustaining kind of energy not really perpetual in the sense because it's still getting energy from the sun but that of course is uh, nearly from our from our point of view an infinite supply of, of energy so the the technical aspects of it there's actually quite a lot of it in the story um, compared to I think Lifeline where we actually see these scientists at work working on the technology and discussing like the efficiency of a of a of a of a um, of a firefly sorry it slipped my mind the name for it. like the efficiency of a firefly versus the efficiency of incandescent light bulbs and and then the, the kind of the figuring out a way to to develop a more efficient one that's kind of worked out in in a fair amount of detail but the key thing is it's that it's got that reversible aspect which allows it to then be an energy producer um, and then the question is like what do we do about this so our characters um, first basically the, the original idea like any scientist probably would have in this situation would be to market this in some way to put this out into the public to find buyers to build infrastructure and basically do it that way become a power company um, but then they get uh, challenged uh, by the energy companies and there's a lot of like background here about just how the big corporations work and, and Heinlein's actually quite interested in this way like the wastefulness and the anti-competitiveness of, of capitalist firms. For instance, there's a line here somewhere about how, how cars aren't built to last, they're built to to break down. And then it's compared to like rail cars or other technologies that do last a long time and are repairable, but consumer electronics, consumer devices like the automobile are not really made to last and they're made to, they're basically uh, expendable or, or you know, planned obsolescence is kind of worked into those products. And these are things, of course, we're still living with a century later almost. Um, so we have that. We have also a um, just the, the thuggishness of the corporations and kind of suppressing technology that might be a threat to their existence. So let me let me uh, read you up aspect of this. Uh, this I actually have the original Super Science Stories issue that this was really published in. Um, found on archive.org, which, uh, you know, being something that's preserving things that would be lost uh, due to uh, irrational copyright laws. I think that's, um, it's fitting, I suppose. Um, anyways, here's what, um, so we start with Douglas's kind of optimism about what this means. He says, I didn't believe my own figures when I worked them out, so I looked it up in Moulton's Astronomy, why we could recover more than 20,000 horsepower in any city block. Do you know what that means? Free power, riches for everybody. It's the greatest thing since the steam engine. What's the matter, kid? Am I wrong someplace? And then Dr. Martin replies, no, Archie, you're not wrong. I've been thinking about it too. Decentralized cities, labor-saving machinery for everyone, luxuries, it's all possible. But I have a feeling that we're starting right into a mess of trouble. Did you ever hear of Breakage Limited? Um, 
And then uh, Dr. Martin scolds uh, Dr. Douglas for not reading more broadly, just reading uh, physical engineer journals. She says it's from George Bernard Shaw in his preface to Back to Methuselah. Uh, and she explains that this is his quote sardonic way of describing the combined power of the corporate industry to resist any change that might threaten their dividends you threaten the whole industrial setup son and you're in danger right where you're sitting end quote so this this problem is very similar to that of what was there in lifeline in that we have a technology that's a threat to the corporations and a business interests and the business interests are willing to use threats and violence to get their way but this is presented as a much more existential threat, a deeper threat, a systemic threat, if you will, to the whole system, because it basically challenges every aspect of it. If you, if you have a free power supply, you are undermining everything, you know, from like the, the, the very, like the way we design cities mentioned here. Like we could have decentralized cities if every household can produce its own power. We don't maybe need to have that value added uh, of energy efficiency that comes from living in cities. We could be much more decentralized. We won't have to have power plants that provide the energy. We don't have to have a centralized institution that does that. We don't need to have necessarily all this networks and this grid work to provide these things. Every home could not only provide its own energy, but more than that, more than enough to, um, to, to you know, post-scarcity of electricity is basically what's predicted here. Uh, and it's, you know, the energy company is just the start of it because it's going to threaten every aspect of, of the society. Um, and she says, sure they do in response to, uh, he kind of says like, well, companies aren't that bad. They like, they get the Bell Labs, right? They're funding re pure research. They can't be too bad. And, and she says, sure they do. And any bright young inventor can get a job with them. And then he's a kept man. The inventions belong to the corporation and only those that fit into the pattern of the powers that be ever see light. The rest are shelved. Do you really think that they'd let a freelance like you upset an investment of billions of dollars? Um, and, and then they give the example here of um, um, like a razor blade that I think this is still Dr. Martin gives an example of a razor blade that her brother bought that was still sharp after five years, but you can't no longer buy that. It's not on the market anymore because as soon as something that's not uh, into the the not into this consumer production, consumer waste cycle is is not going to be sold. And this energy supply is just that. So they realize they really can't compete with the system and they'll lose to do it. So what is the solution that we are presented with here? Well, it doesn't take them long to come up with it. And that is essentially give it away for free to everybody. Um, release it, publicize it. Don't hold on to the IP. Ask for a modest royalty that you may or may not get. I don't think there's much implication here that he would get it. But since it would spread so fast, even if they just collected a little bit you know from the users of this technology it would be enough to support his research into the future and so we got kind of a happy ending here for him where he's still able to make a little bit of business a career out of this or they are able to make a career out of this technology and support their future research but for the vast majority of humanity they'll be benefited from having free access 
to the technology. The only real concession to uh, a, a personal financial stake in this technology being kept on is this throwaway line where, yeah, maybe we can like grab a little bit of royalties from it, um, you know, as we kind of license this out. But it's essentially given out to free. It's like the cotton gin, all right? It's once it's out, it's going to spread. And it's not like these two inventors are going to be able to hold on to it very, very long. Now, the alternative, of course, is to try the old way of competing with the big companies and and and, get in, and the system itself probably losing and not making it much of that much money anyways. Dr. Martin says, what can you lose? We've made a measly couple thousand dollars so far keeping the process secret. If you turn it loose, you could still hold the patent and you could charge a nominal royalty, one that it wouldn't be worth while trying to beat, say, 10, square, 10 cents a square yard on each screen manufactured. Quote. That's the throwaway line that suggests, oh, they'll still make their money. They'll they'll be fine. These characters will will are not really given away for free. But it's really, that's what he's saying. He's saying you got like these technologies that benefit humanity should just be released. This is something he certainly talked about pretty explicitly in Lifeline, uh, and I think in For Us to Living, it's also a theme there as well, where these technologies need to be unlocked from these kind of hierarchical structures in the society. So in this way, this becomes a quite radical uh, little story about intellectual property. And, and I think it's quite a valuable one that's that's worth worth reading and remembering if, uh, if you haven't. Um, and it's certainly relevant to us today because it is dealing with the key technological change we need to make, which is, is a new power source. We need the screen transition is going to require essentially what he's calling for here, which is power from the sun directly, not not a couple billion years or millions of years removed as it is with fossil fuels. Um, now, the other thing I guess to talk about in the story, I guess it's it's it's, it's hanging there. It's um, I think it's the elephant in the room is is gender. Um, we end up we or the story opens up pretty conventional. We have a male doctor gets an, an, a letter, a, a telegram from a doctor, a Dr. Martin. M.L. Martin, no name given, no first name anyways. And he's going to meet them. Um, um, she, it says laboratory, but actually he's at a hotel. So he goes down to the hotel bar looking for this doctor, doesn't see it, but sees this really hot babe at the bar. And um, anyways, turns out, he finds out later on that that hot babe was Dr. Martin. Um, so we have as we often have in Heinlein stories, uh, conventionally attractive, eventually sexually available woman, right? But she is the, she's Dr. Martin, right? She is the instigator of the plot. She does everything. I mean, she helps, she gives him the information he needs to complete this invention. She's crucial to that, she's essential to it. And she's the one who suggests uh, making this stuff public. So. Yeah, there. It's you know, it's a Heinlein thing to proceed. Apparently, I've seen enough of this and what I've read to have these independent, brilliant, autonomous women that are also like somehow sexually available and somehow attractive, right? And that's um, I don't know if there's a broader interpretation about this. Maybe it's just Heinlein's thing. Maybe just like like the ladies that much but of course there is that sexual libertarianism that 
underpins his stories. Um, and what does that require? Let's brainstorm that for a little bit, I suppose. Uh, what would a truly, uh, a truly, e uh, uh, what kind of society could have egalitarian sexual relations between men and women? Well, obviously it wouldn't be a society with wealth inequality between men and women, right? Because there, if there's a, some kind of material dependence of one sex on the other, then, then you're not gonna be able to have true sexual liberty, right? Same thing with education, right? So we have to have educational income opportunity equality if we're gonna have uh, like freer sexual relations. I think that, that, that makes sense to me. And I think that's gotta be partially what's um, on Heinlein's mind when he presents these women. So it's not just that there's these hot babes that, that, that Heinlein is fast, fa fantasizing about. He's fast fantasizing about a society in which women aren't bound in domestic labor for their survival. And that's, he's still one foot like in the 19th century, right? He's not that far from a time when the Victorian era, when women were actually quite limited in their, their opportunities. But he's living much of his life during uh, the early feminist movement, the sexual revolution, in which the arguments for this are, get, are worked out and being publicized much more aggressively. And, I, and actually, I would argue that Heinlein himself is part of the sexual revolution. Uh, in if you look at the influence of works like *Stranger in Strange Land*. So, yeah, I I think there's a, a kind of a radical gendered politics in stories like this too, um, where because she's a doctor, because she's brilliant, because she's able to you know, I mean, she basically drives the plot, right? This story doesn't exist without Dr. Martin. Then the, the kind of them getting together at the end, the kind of catharsis of the relationship is, is not really one based on a power dynamic. They're both liberated, right? And and yeah, so maybe if this was a novel, we'd have a deeper dissection of that, like we did in For Us to Living. But I think we're gonna have to wait to read more stories of his to get a fuller picture of, of what kind of society could create true sexual libertarianism. So um, that's, I guess, it. I mean, this is, a, this is a great story about IP, and I think it's still relevant because it's, um, you know, if we're going to be free in terms of our potential, we're going to have to dislodge the, the stranglehold that corporations have over IP, right? You know, and I've talked to people about like copyright and, and defenders of copyright, but if you bring up like corporate IPs, they're a little more sensitive, they're or a little more accepting of the idea of limiting patents, but they seem to be more strict about their about something like copyright because the idea is it's like it's a it's a it's this writer working by themselves right putting food on the family not a not a soulless corporation but uh or maybe that like these technologies are much more crucial to the benefit of humanity than a work of fiction right that's there might be grounds for a distinction there but but i don't know i think 
if you accept this argument that Heinlein's making here, it seems applicable to literature, it seems applicable to movies and film, and anything that can be used for the public benefit. So, two radical narratives here. One on IP and one on gender relations. And the second one, maybe we have to put an asterisk on until we kind of get our heads more around uh, his, his views on sex. But we'll see. Um, so, I guess that's all I'm going to talk about now. Uh, in the next episode, we will look at The Roads Must Roll. So this is uh, a little bit of a longer tale, a little bit more involved. It is one I've read before. Um, it's in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. Uh, so that's that's where I first read it, was in that, um, that anthology. Um, but yeah, that's what we'll do next. I look forward to it because it's a fun story and it deals with labor unions and, and uh, the central role of transportation and transportation unions in... Um, in the function of a mature industrial society certainly very important and uh and maybe on our mind too because we just averted a railroad strike and if we think back to how important railroad workers have been to the labor movement over the past decades and centuries all right um that's going to be it for now uh, i'll see you next time thanks for listening